All right, so it's good to be with you. So you got your Bibles open to Genesis. We'll do some quick review and then we're going to move on. I want to cover mostly today the image of God. So let me catch up with you here. In Genesis 1, we've observed a number of things just by way of review. That God created everything through his word and that sets us up for everything that follows because God always works through his word. Sorry, let me shut that, uh, this off. You don't need to see that on the screen. That's irrelevant. Okay. We observed, uh, let's see. Yeah, it did stop. Thank you so much. Yeah, probably because I'm just shaking and going crazy. <laughs> All right, y'all, are you in Romans 2 or 12? Good grief. Now, all of this fits. If you've, if you've read Romans, you see that Paul addresses the doctrinal stuff. And the big doctrinal stuff is that you're saved not by the law. The Ten Commandments don't save you. That's the first part of Romans. And connected with that, we're all sinners. Jew and Gentile alike are all sinners before God. Remember, we all fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fall. And then he preaches Jesus for salvation, Romans 3. And that you're saved by faith. He clinches it with Abraham in Romans 4. Then he, cl- then he clinches the salvation with Jesus even more in Romans 5. And then he talks about what the life of holy baptism is like in Romans 6. How you live in and from your baptism in Romans 6. And then of course now in Romans 12 he, t- he talks about, alright, how does a Christian live? If you're Lord of all, running with this theme this morning... If you're Lord of all, what does that mean then? Look at Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. God's mercy is what? Christ. So in view of what God has done for you in Christ, I I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, as living sacrifices. You are to live like Christ. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, if you don't have this memorized, you need to memorize this and hook it with what it means to be the holy and royal priesthood. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So on the one hand, Jesus, his death, his death is gift, gift for our salvation. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's gift of salvation, but on the other hand, it's example. And it's an example for us to follow in our life as Christians followers of Christ. So you do not live to be served, but to serve. And you give your life, not for salvation, because only Jesus did that, but you live your life in service for other people. What do you need? Okay, I'll help you. Make sense? And this is Romans 12. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. That is to say, you don't live for yourself, you sacrificially live for the sake of others. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. You're Lord of all for the sake of serving all. So this Christianity bit's really not that hard to get it up here, (laughs) but then to translate it down here, that's another story, of course. But you understand what I'm saying. And then notice what Paul says. Let's continue with that verse in Romans 12. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, and it's holy, and it's pleasing to God. And notice he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. So on Sunday morning, you come to church, and that's, that's what? When you come to church, and you hear the word of God, and you eat and drink Christ's body and blood, that's worship, right? And the highest worship there is spelled how? 
F-A-I-T-H. So on Sunday morning, the highest worship you give to Jesus is you hear his word and you trust it. And then God kicks you out of the church and says, now you live in this world for a while. And now this is how you live. You don't live for yourself. You live for the sake of other people in your body as a sac- you live sacrificially. And he says, that too is your worship. So there's the worship of faith on church, then God kicks you out, and then there's worship going on. And how do you spell that as you worship in the world? This way, L-O-V-E. See, that's, see, I told you last week, I said, if you know Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you know all the rest of the scriptures. What does it mean to be a human being in Genesis 1 and 2? Adam and Eve live by faith toward God, and they live towards love for one another and the creation. This is worship in both respects. So let me, let me have some fun. So there's liturgy after the liturgy. There's liturgy on Sunday morning where Jesus serves us. And then there's liturgy during the week when you serve, like Jesus, people in your life. You know, she wants a new car, Mom and Dad, so you're going to get her one? Yeah, that's right, so you're going to serve her. <laughs> yeah, Brad's rolling his eyes. But you understand my point. Probably the service goes like this. Uh, take her to the orthodontist, get the braces tightened, that kind of thing. That's how the service goes. And paying for the orthodontist bill right now, that's how the service goes. Believe me, been there, done that. Glad that's over with. <laughs> Any questions about what I'm doing here? All right, let's continue. I've got some more passages there. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. So Paul lives this way, what I'm just teaching you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. It's very interesting. My Bible at the beginning of chapter 9 has a heading that says, The Rights of an Apostle. Okay, so Americans hear rights, and you know what comes to mind. Now Paul's going to blow your mind. So what verses did I say? 19 to 23. Here we go. Let me catch up. Though I am free and belong to no man, namely I'm Lord of all. So though I'm free and I belong to nobody, I make myself a slave to everyone. He's Lord of all, but how does he live? As a servant of all. Do you see this? Let's keep going. To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. The point is, the rights of an apostle, I mean, Paul, could, he, could, he could go off about saying, as an apostle, I have these rights, now you shut up and listen. But instead, I'm a free, I'm free man, and nobody owns me, And you know what does he do? I'm a servant. I'm here to serve you. And that's me. I'm here to serve you. And how do I do it? With God's word. So the pastor is always a servant to serve. We learn that's the right of an apostle. And apostolic ministry is that too, as pastors do their work. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down here? 
Let's keep going. I've got another one. Uh, the Matthew 20 passage, which I quoted earlier, but let's go ahead and read it. That way you'll, it'll, be, it'll be just stuck in your head. Yeah, stuck in your head. That's right, Wade. <laughs> let's put it this way. It'll be tattooed on your brain. So Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. Now again, you've got the apostles. They fight amongst each other all the time, you know. Jesus says in verse 25, he calls them together. And he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. He's talking to his apostles here. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. So if you want to be great, you must be servant. You're Lord of all, but you must be a servant. See, and this is helpful for husbands because headship for a husband means service. That's the authority of a husband. Let's keep going. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, brothers and sisters, on number three there on page 10, if you're interested in reading more about what I've been trying to teach you here this morning, and you want to read some more, you can get online and you can read, out, read one of Dr. Martin Luther's seminal writings called The Freedom of the Christian Man. He wrote it in 1520. That, that is a huge year in Martin Luther's life, 1520. Now, you all remember the year 1517, don't you? <laughs> what did he do in 1517? 95 Theses, that's right. Okay, good. So 1517, 95 theses, but by the time you get to 1520, things become even clearer and clearer and clearer in his thinking from the scriptures about what the gospel is. Keep in mind that Luther was brought up like all medieval theologians and pastors, that the, the law saves you. They'd say, of course, Jesus died for you, et cetera, et cetera. And, but essentially the law, the Ten Commandments, was the instrument to save you. And he breaks from this because the scriptures don't teach this. And so this writing, if you're interested, this is one of the greatest writings that he wrote. And he picks up on this biblical theme that I've been trying to teach you. Lord of all, servant of all. That's what the Christian life is. And brothers and sisters, to make the final point, Lord of all, to be servant of all, is what it means to be made in the image of God. Because God is Lord of all for the sake of taking care and serving it all. I hope that's helpful for you. All right, so let's continue. Number four on page 10. So you've got Holy Trinity, namely one God and three persons. There is rela relationality or a relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. So God's being is one, but it's one in relation. From all eternity, this is what I'm talking about. From all eternity, here's the relationship. The Father begets the Son. So the Son is begotten of the Father from eternity. That's that relationship. And communicates to Him the fullness of His being in an act of self-surrender. I can't emphasize that enough. When the Father begets Jesus from eternity as His Son, this is an act, for lack of better terminology, an act of self-giving. Namely, living outside the self. And I'm pausing there, so I want that to sink in with you. So does God the Father live for himself? He does not. 
he communicates, as I said, on, and in an act of self-surrender, he begets his son from eternity. Let's keep going. If you're picking this, you're connecting the dots, see, this is Lord of all certainty. So letter I there. Because God the Father possesses an infinity of power and glory, then he can infinitely give of himself. Lord of all, and then can give it all in the begetting of the Son, without losing himself. I'm going to read that sentence one more time, because it's huge. Because God the Father possesses an infinity of power and glory, he can then infinitely give of himself in the begetting of the Son without losing himself. That is this relationality in the Trinity. Letter C. Likewise then, the Son, having received the fullness of the divine being from the Father, can likewise then do what? Well, check it out. Surrender himself to the Father through a return of the fullness of his being in the act of loving procession of the Holy Spirit. And the ancient church fathers, they used a phrase called the spiration of the Spirit when they talked of of this, what I'm trying to say. Spiration, that's hard to understand. I hope it made sense. Let me read it again. So Jesus then surrenders himself to the Father through a return of the fullness of his being in the act of loving procession of the Holy Spirit. Letter D, therefore then, God is constituted as triune precisely as an eternal event of what? Now this is really important here. Self-donating love, expressing itself as mutual surrender. What I'm trying to say, and I tried to say this as clearly as possible by writing it down, is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do not live for themselves. They live for the sake of each other, for lack of better terminology, in the triune unity. So to be, part, to be made in the image of God then is to reflect that in our earthly life. So you don't live for yourself. You, so, well, I'll... I'll get ahead of it. I've got it on the sheet. But again, the marriage, the marriage relationship, Ephesians 5, you know, Paul talks about husband and wife. And then at the end of Ephesians 5, he says, oh, I've really been talking about Christ and the church. That relationship. So the, the, the relationship on earth between husband and wife is to reflect the image of God in this way, that the husband su- surrenders himself to his wife. The, the husband does not live for himself. He lives only for his wife. And the wife does what? She receives that love. And then what does she do in response? She surrenders herself to him completely and totally. And that is part of what it means to reflect this image of God. Let me continue. Uh, this is, I hope this is helpful for you. Let's keep going. Letter E. So if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, the divine being and divine persons are not comprised by individuals bound together by a set of rules but in a primary and fundamental act of self-surrendering grace. So God is a donating God. God is a giving God, not only to you, but inside the Trinity itself, the essence of the Trinity. Letter F, the unilateral self-surrender of the Father then constitutes the personhood of the Son, who in turn then is able to surrender himself to the Father in the loving procession of the Holy Spirit. So let's connect the theological dots. Namely, that in Genesis 1, when God makes man in his own image, in his own likeness, relationality then is a key component of reflecting God's divine image. 
as human beings. So check it out. In his internal Trinitarian discussion regarding the creation of humanity, God states that humans are made after, it's not my likeness, did you catch that? But our likeness and our image. Then we are told that God creates not just one human, but sexual differentiated humans in relation to one another. Male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.27. In Genesis 2, Moses pushes this relationality analogically as it follows the Trinitarian pattern. Watch. Adam begets Eve from his side in a similar analogy of the eternal begetting of the Son by the Father. The woman is not an inferior being, but is what the man is, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, Genesis 2.23. Likewise, their mutual love and bodily surrender results in what? The fruitfulness of childbearing, you know, be fruitful and multiply, in the analogy with what? The mutual loving procession of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can't help myself, and you know me, I've got to say more on this. I'm reading the, the sheet again. Let's check out how this works then in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is even more direct than Genesis in his comparison of the male-female relationship with the relationality of the Godhead, namely the Trinity. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he speaks of Jesus' head or source being what? God the Father. I, I can't emphasize that. 1 Corinthians 11, who is Jesus' head or source? God the Father. Just as the head or the source of the woman is who? Man. In this then, the male-female relationship is seen as an analogical parallel to the relationship between the Father and the Son. In his state of humiliation, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, in other words, the incarnate, not eternal Son, was subject to the Father, just as wives are subject to their husbands. Why this is the case is rooted in the fact that the term head can also mean source. The male is the source of the female in Genesis 2. Eve came from Adam's side, just as the father is the source of the son, both eternally and in his incarnate state. As the Apostle Paul states in Philippians 2, it is precisely because the son possesses the full glory of God, the, of God that he can surrender himself then to the will of the Father as a servant. So just as he eternally returns himself to the Father through the procession of the Spirit, so too in time he offers the fullness that he has received from the Father in his sacrificial death on the cross. As Hebrews teaches, he offered himself up through the eternal Spirit, Hebrews 9.14. So the implication for male-female relations in the New Testament then is clearly taught by Paul in Ephesians 5. There he says that Christ is the what? The head or the source of the church, just as husbands are heads of their wives. Christ became the head of the church, how? By surrendering himself to the church in death on the cross. So indeed, John shows that the very substance of the word and sacrament ministry of the church is then begotten from Christ's side in analogy to Adam's begetting of Eve. In John 19, verse 34, check it out. At, at once there came out blood and water. 
And John's the only one that records this. Remember, the soldier comes to see if Jesus is really dead, slices his side open, and out comes what? Blood and water. John's the only one that records that. And there's a reason for it. I think if you're picking it up, you're, you know what I'm doing here. Look at what he says in 1 John. That's John's gospel. Out came blood and water. In 1 John 5, John says this at the top of page 12, for there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now you'll notice, blood, water, connected with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, these three agree. This means that the male headship does not mean carte blanche authority to dominate the wife, but rather makes it dependent on a willingness to act in a matter consistent with a Christ-like self-surrender, as we read in Matthew 20 earlier. So in analogy to Luther's paradigm of Christian freedom, Lord of all, servant of all, the husband's total surrender to his wife frees her to submit to him in everything. Now submit here means to order, to order your life as wife. That's what that means. The priority of the man's surrender to his wife, as in the first couple, Adam and Eve, therefore makes sense of Paul's language of submitting to one another in Ephesians 5.21. Both husband and wife submit to one another, but to borrow a term from Trinitarian theology, there is an order to their mutual submission. Much as in eternity the Father, as the font or the source of divinity, surrenders his being in the begetting of the Son, and the Son in turn surrenders himself to his bride, the church, so too the husband takes priority in his self-surrender to the wife. The wife submits to the husband in an analogical parallel to the re eternal return of the Son to the Father in the procession of the Spirit, as well as the church's free submission to Jesus. So, with Genesis 1 still ringing in our ears, what else does the Bible say about the image of God? Let's check it out. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says that Christ is the image of God. In Colossians 1, check it out. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created, now check this out, through Jesus and for who? For Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So what is the connection between Jesus as the image of the invisible God and Adam and Eve as those created in God's own image after His likeness? What does one image have to do with the other? Are they the same? Are they different? Well, to help us get started in answering these questions, let me quote the church father, Athanasius, who died on May 2nd, 373, and he worked in Alexandria, Egypt. Just a side note. Do you realize that Christianity spread from Palestine all the way through northern Africa? Did you know that? The majority of people who lived in northern Africa in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries A.D. were Christians. Now, all that's been destroyed. You know who's done that work. And I don't say, I don't say that to, to disparage certain people, but Islam is what then conquered the North Africa and most of the known world at that time and murdered Christians by the millions. But I, I don't know if you knew this history. That's why I'm just taking this moment to pause here. That in the second, third, and fourth centuries, Northern Africa was Christian. All across North Africa. 
and especially in Egypt. That, people don't know that anymore, just a side note. So um, Athanasius, and so we have a creed in our hymnals called the Athanasian Creed, which we say one time a year on Trinity Sunday. And you're all saying, yeah, thanks be to God for that. Because it's so long, you know, right? All right. So what is, what's one image have to do with the other? Christ being the image of God and we being made in the image of God. What's the deal? So let me quote Athanasius. In his writing called On the Incarnation of the Word, he argues correctly, I contend, that since God desired humanity to know him, he gives them share in his own image and after his likeness. So when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, how was he, namely God, to get them back, to renew them in his image? Athanasius says, and I think he's correct here, he says, by the, by the presence of the very image of God, our Lord Jesus Christ came. Now, if you're picking up what he's throwing down, let me summarize it. So Adam and Eve, when they sin in Genesis 3, they lose the image of God. They don't live by faith anymore. They don't love each other, right, like they did before. They're Lord of all to be Lord of all. You shall be like God, Satan said. Oh, well, we, well they bought that. They didn't want to be servant of all anymore. They wanted to be gods. So they destroyed this. So what does God do? He sends his son, who is the exact image of God, to do what? To renew the image of God among us, which is lived how? By faith and love. Lord of all for the sake of serving it all. Do you see that? So what I'm trying to say is one of the reasons why Jesus dies on the cross, why he lives a perfect life, not sinning, is to restore the image of God among fallen creation so that you, by faith through him, can live how? Lord of all, servant of all. Faith, love. Any questions? Let me finish this with uh, Athanasius here and then we'll quit. So in other words, the image would restore the image. Namely, Jesus would restore the image of God among fallen creation. And he adds, quote, When the word of God came in his own person, that, as he was the image of the Father, he might be able to create afresh the man after the image of God. So Athanasius illustrated his point this way. He maintains it's like a stained and faded painting in need of some serious touching up. Now just run with the analogy. What's the artist to do? Start, from scr start over from scratch? No. He summons the original man, the one who, whose image is on the canvas, and has him sit down again so he can repaint his portrait on the existing canvas. The father's son is that man, and we are the stained and faded canvas. The father, looking to his image, the son, repaints us in Christ's image, that we might reflect him and know him once more. So when we read that God fashioned Adam and Eve, male and female, in his image, after his likeness, what exactly are we seeing take place? We are observing the Father making humanity in the image of his Son. He is the image, and we are made in that image. Remember what St. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, By him, Jesus, or in him, all things were created. St. John says the same thing in his gospel. All things were made through him, namely Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made, John 1.3. So God's creation of us, therefore, is simultaneously a revelation of him, for surely an image reveals something of that which it reflects. So, there stands Adam, there stands Eve, 
two humans mirror the word of the Father in whom and by whom they were made. Let me do it this way on the board, and this is how I'll quit. I'll do it by, by means of a timeline, because we're linear thinkers. So here's our timeline. We'll, at the end of the timeline, we'll put 33 AD, our Lord's death and resurrection. And then the beginning of the timeline, we'll put Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning of time. When God creates Adam and Eve in his image, after his likeness, there's a reason for that. Because Adam and Eve are to reflect God's image in the way that how Jesus is going to do it. Or flip it. Jesus reflecting the image of God gets put here. It's both. Let me try and illustrate it another way with another analogy. So, um, why does Jesus die on the cross, and then why does the soldier slit his side wide open and out comes blood and water? I'll tell you why. It's because of what God does here. How did he create Eve? Well, Adam fell into, the, into a deep sleep, didn't he? And from Adam's side, he created a bride. So what God does here is a foretaste of what he will do here. Because from Jesus the second and the last Adam falls into the deep sleep of death. And from his side creates a bride, the church. The church is created through Christ's blood and the water that flows from his side. 1 John 5, three that, three that give witness, the spirit, the blood, and the water. And the church has always taught that that blood and water are the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. There the Holy Spirit is at work, creating a bride from Christ's side. So that's why I was trying to say not very well. Your, your eyes are glazed over and I better quit. Any questions? <laughs> yes, Denise? So the Holy Spirit obviously couldn't come until Christ died. Christ had to die before the Holy Spirit could come down. He didn't exist at the same time on earth. You mean the Holy Spirit and Jesus? Correct. That is not correct. Because in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit is there hovering over the water. And so you have the Trinity all right there from the beginning. And so all three persons of the Trinity have always been, never had a beginning, never had an end. So when we read the scriptures, all three are present. So let us make man, that's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does that help you? So yeah, we have to be careful in how we talk about the, the presence of the Spirit. So sometimes Christians... They think that the Old Testament is like, well, it's like a football game. The first half, God the Father plays. That's the Old Testament. And then after halftime, then Jesus comes in and plays the game in the third quarter. And then Jesus gets tired in the third quarter. In the fourth quarter, the Holy Spirit comes in. That, that's, all three are present in the game. That, so I hope that's helpful. And, and, and let's, well, I'll leave it at that. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven.